Well, we are continuing our study of Isaiah, and we're moving into kind of a new section. It's really kind of a wrap-up or a, a conclusion to the chapters that we were looking at in chapters 13 to 23. Isaiah 13 to 23 are sometimes referred to as the oracles to the nations or the messages to the nations, and they are prophetic messages, mostly of judgment, to the different nations in that ancient Near Eastern area, neighbors of Israel, if you will. And uh, what we're looking at now is the next four chapters, chapter 24 through 27, is uh, really just kind of even stepping out even bigger than that. It's uh, chapter 13 to 23 is focused on the nations, and the overriding message is that the Lord is sovereign over all of these nations, and he is just, and he is righteous, and as the judge of all the earth, he will do what is right, and he will execute his justice on these nations in his time, in accordance with his will. But in chapter 24 through 27, it's almost like the, uh, the focus gets even larger and looks at the whole world and even beyond the whole world to the whole universe and shows how the Lord is the sovereign over everything, all creation. And, and so it kind of zooms out geographically in terms of the whole universe, but it also zooms out in terms of time because it focuses on really kind of the end of all time. Whereas some of these messages to the nations like Babylon or Egypt, they were more uh, focused on you know, the next couple of centuries in time to Isaiah's lifetime. Whereas, especially when we get um, toward the end of this chapter, we're going to see, you know, big, huge, cosmic, universal type language of God's judgment raining down on this world, which is more like end of the world type judgment. So it kind of zooms out to the even bigger picture of the whole universe and all of human history and shows just how big and how sovereign the Lord is. And so sometimes this section of Isaiah, chapter 24 through 27, is called the Little Apocalypse. And it's because it, in places, it sounds kind of like Revelation. Revelation is known as the Apocalypse. Um, uh, apocalypsis is the Greek word that simply means revelation or to reveal something that was hidden or mysterious. It, it reveals it. And so Revelation, literally in the Greek, it starts out as the apocalypsis of John. So the, the revelation of John, of Jesus Christ, to the churches. And you know that Revelation has a lot of symbols, a lot of images. And it speaks in these big kind of end of history type scenes. And so there are portions of this passage of Isaiah that, that resemble that. And in fact, in Revelation, some of the language of Revelation draws on these chapters from Isaiah. And so sometimes this little portion is called the little apocalypse, the little revelation. And so we're going to start by looking just at chapter 24 tonight. Chapter 24. And in chapter 24, the focus is on the earth and its destruction. The destruction of the earth. And in verses 1 through 6, we have just some general aspects of this, this destruction of the earth. In verse 1, we see a declaration that the Lord is in charge. 
the sovereignty of the Lord. So verse one says, see, the Lord is going to lay waste to the earth and devastate it. He will ruin its face and scatter its inhabitants. So you can already see it's, it's zooming out bigger beyond what chapter 13 to 23 was about. Because each of those uh, sections in chapter 13 to 23 would begin with something like uh, a message about Egypt or a message about Babylon. And now this is the Lord is going to lay judgment, lay waste to the earth, to all of the world. So the Lord is in charge and he has this right as the creator Lord to, to execute his judgment on the whole world. We also see in verse two that the Lord doesn't play favorites in the sense that this judgment is going to come on all classes of people, all types of people from the smallest to the greatest. So verse two says it will be the same for the priest as for the people. So religious leader and the lay people for the master as for his servant, master and slave for the mistress as for her servant, for seller as for buyer, for borrower as for lender, for debtor as for creditor. In other words, regardless of who you are, right? Regardless of which class you might fit into in society, whether you're regarded as a leader, someone who is noble, someone who is religious, someone who is rich, who lends people money, or whether you're on the complete opposite end of the spectrum and you're poor and you're the borrower or you're just a lay person or, you know, a slave, it all encompassing. And this judgment is going to come upon all regardless of how people in society might view you in terms of your layer or your stratification in society. The Lord is not going to play favorites when it comes to his judgment. In verses three through six, we see that the Lord judges thoroughly that his justice is complete and exhaustive. So the earth will be completely laid waste and totally plundered. The Lord has spoken this word. The earth dries up and withers. The world languishes and withers. The heavens languish with the earth. The earth is defiled by its people. They have disobeyed the laws, violated the statutes, and broken the everlasting covenant. Therefore, a curse consumes the earth. Its people must bear their guilt. Therefore, earth's inhabitants are burned up and very few are left. That's some big language, isn't it? So it's, it's talking about worldwide judgment. And interestingly enough, it talks about just the complete devastation that is going to come on the world. It talks about the earth as well as the heavens. And it gives the reason why, doesn't it? It, ta- it says that because the people disobeyed, because the people were rebellious against God, because the people disregarded the everlasting covenant. And what might that refer to? It seems to be referring to something even broader than God's specific covenant with Israel, in that perhaps it's referring to something, uh, even going back to the Garden of Eden, perhaps, in the sense that all of mankind has violated God's holy laws and, and all mankind have rebelled against him. And so God's judgment will come on the world. And at the end, though, in verse number six, it says very few are left. There's that theme that we've seen throughout Isaiah, isn't it, of a remnant. There is judgment, but 
there's a remnant. And that remnant is saved by grace. And so the Lord, even in judgment, shows mercy to the ones that he chooses to show mercy. And then in verse 7 through the end of the chapter, we get into more specific aspects of the destruction. So in other words, verses 1 through 6 was kind of more generic, kind of broad, the whole earth. And now we're going to get into more specifics of how this is going to unfold. So in verses 7 through 13, we see gloom and despair. The new wine dries up and the vine withers. All the merrymakers groan. And so you can see now how not just the earth is going to be judged, but now specifically here's how it's going to impact people's lives. So the new wine dries up and the vine withers. All the merrymakers groan. And so this affects not only the farmer, the the person who owns the vineyard, but it affects everyone on down the chain, doesn't it? All the people who enjoy the product of the vineyard. The joyful timbrels are stilled. The noise of the revelers has stopped. The joyful harp is silent. It's just, it's creating a mood, isn't it? In the sense that it's taking times of joy and bringing it to times of grief and sadness because of the judgment that's coming. No longer do they drink wine with a song. The beer is bitter to its drinkers. In other words, time for partying is over, right? The, the vines are dried up. Songs of singing, of joy, they're all silent. No more fun, no more enjoyment in these parties of drinking. The ruined city lies desolate. The entrance to every house is barred. In the streets, they cry out for wine. All joy turns to gloom. All joyful sounds are banished from the earth. That's pretty solemn, isn't it? Just complete despair and, and grief. The city is left in ruins. Its gate is battered to pieces. So will it be on the earth and among the nations, as when an olive tree is beaten or when gleanings are left after the grape harvest. And the idea there is after the harvest is nothing is left. It's, and, and so even though it's been talking about, you know, in very specific terms, things like the vine drying up, or it even mentions a city singular, the ruined city lies desolate. But then when we get to verse 13, it reminds us we're talking about something here on a global scale. That so it will be among all the nations. So this isn't specific to any one city. This is the judgment that is going to come on the world that God will bring. Grief and despair. In verses 14 through 16, we see that as a result of the Lord's judgment, that glory redounds to the Lord. The Lord receives glory even in judgment. They raise their voices. They shout for joy. From the west, they acclaim the Lord's majesty. Therefore, in the east, give glory to the Lord. Exalt the name of the Lord, the God of Israel, in the islands of the sea. From the ends of the earth, we hear singing glory to the righteous one. Now, that's, a, that's like a, almost like a whiplash kind of transition there, isn't it? From 
verses 7 through 13, gloom, despair, no more singing, no more joy. Everything's dried up. Cities laid waste. And then we get to verse 14 and it says, raise your voices and shout for joy. But you might be thinking, wait a second, I thought all the songs of joy were silenced. And so this, this is what Isaiah does. He, he, he brings in these different scenes, doesn't he? And, and it's, you got to be quick thinking about what he's doing when he brings in these different scenes. And it seems like what he's doing in verses 14 through 16 is very quickly he flips the coin over and he looks at the other side of the coin. What do I mean by that? In the day of the Lord, which is kind of what Isaiah 24 is describing, is a day of the Lord in which God comes to bring judgment on the earth. But whenever God brings judgment, what's the other side of the coin? Salvation, isn't it? Whenever you see the day of the Lord, whenever you see salvation, a lot of times you see judgment. When you see judgment, a lot of times you see salvation. And it all depends on where you stand in relationship to the Lord, which side of the coin you're on. And so if you're among the wicked nations, then you're on the side of judgment and no singing and no dancing and no joy. But if you're on the side of the Lord's people, then at the end, when the judgment comes, then you're rejoicing. Why? Because the, the fulfillment of everything that history has been moving toward has come to its climax. And the Lord is finally bringing judgment on all those who are wicked. The Lord is, is making all things right. The Lord in his time is going to make everything just. And what will be left is a place of joy and peace and righteousness. And so on the one side, there's judgment. But for those who belong to the Lord, there's joy and there's celebration that the justice of the Lord has come. And so we hear glory to the righteous one when the judgment of the Lord comes on those who are wicked. And then we see kind of what I was talking about toward the beginning is this big cosmic universal type language of judgment, universal upheaval. But I said, there seems to be a kind of a quick transition in the middle of verse 16. But I said, I waste away. I waste away. Woe to me. The treacherous betray. With treachery, the treacherous betray. Terror and pit and snare await you, people of the earth. So we're back to judgment again, aren't we? So judgment, quick flash at salvation and joy and rejoicing in the Lord. Now back quick flashback to judgment and what the God's going to bring on the earth. So terror and pit and snare await you, people of the earth. Whoever flees at the sound of terror will fall into a pit. Whoever climbs out of the pit will be caught in a snare. The floodgates of the heavens are opened. The foundations of the earth shake. So you can see in verse 18, especially the first part, basically the hopelessness of trying to escape the Lord's judgment, right? You can try to escape one aspect of his judgment, but you'll fall into another. You try to get out of that, you will fall into another. In other words, when the Lord judges, no one will escape. 
it is, it is exhaustive. It is full. And there is no way to run away from judgment day, standing before the Lord. And then we see these, this kind of huge description, big, worldwide type, uh, cosmic type things. So we see the floodgates of the heavens are opened. What does that remind you of? Reminds you of the flood, right? You know, Genesis 6 through 9 of worldwide destruction. And it's interesting that whenever you read, even in the New Testament, whenever you read about the end of time, of uh, the Lord's coming back again, and the future day of the Lord judgment, a lot of times it is compared to the days of Noah. You see it in Jesus in Matthew 24. He says, as in the days of Noah, people were eating and drinking, giving in marriage. He says, so will it be in the days of the coming of the Son of Man. Peter in 2 Peter um, says, you know, people are saying, where's, where's the Lord? Where's the promise of his coming? And Peter reminds them, don't you remember the Lord has judged in the past? And he reminds them of the flood. And he reminds them of Sodom and Gomorrah. And so, in other words, those, the flood is often like the preeminent example in Scripture of the judgment of the Lord, and especially a worldwide judgment. And so Isaiah kind of invokes that language to communicate the judgment that's coming. The foundations of the earth shake. You could even think of that in flood-like terms. The fountains of the great deep are broken up, Genesis says. So, huge destruction. The earth is broken up. The earth is split asunder. The earth is violently shaken. Communicates like a a very strong earthquake. Violent. The earth reels like a drunkard. It sways like a hut in the wind. So heavy upon it is the guilt of its rebellion that it falls, never to rise again. Again, we see the reason for the Lord's judgment, don't we? This is just. The flood was just, wasn't it? Genesis says that the, the thoughts and the imaginations of the people were only wicked all the time. So the Lord's judgment was just in the days of the flood. So will it be at the end of time. God's judge, judgment will be just because of the rebellion and wickedness that is on the earth. In that day, the Lord will punish the powers in the heavens above and the kings on the earth below. Who are the powers in the heavens above? Maybe likely referring to Satan, his demons, evil forces. Um, Ephesians 6, Paul says, We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and the forces of darkness in this world. So God is going to punish the powers in the heavens, perhaps referring to um, the... Satan and his followers, evil forces in this world. God is going to judge them. We see in Revelation, in chapter 20, that that is fulfilled, isn't it? Revelation 20 talks about God throwing Satan into the lake of fire and binding him, as well as the kings on the earth below. So there's a day of justice, a day of reckoning coming, not only for those who are wicked on the earth, but also for the unseen spiritual forces that are wicked. There's a judgment day coming. They will be herded together like prisoners bound in a dungeon. They will be shut up in prison and be punished after many days. 
The moon will be dismayed, the sun ashamed, for the Lord Almighty will reign on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem and before its elders with great glory. See, here's where we're getting even bigger than the earth, aren't we? So up to the moon and the sun and even even the forces in space, if you will, the, the great lights that God created are going to be affected by this end time judgment. And so in verse 23, we see um, that the focus once again comes to Jerusalem, doesn't it? So this judgment is coming. God is going to come. He's going to bring judgment on the earth. Why? Because the earth is rebellious. Because the earth is wicked. But even in that, God is going to save his remnant, isn't he? We saw earlier in the chapter, there's going to be a few left. There's going to be those who have been chosen by grace to be left, and they're going to be saved. And those are the ones who speak out in the middle of the chapter, praise be to God, glory to God, sing praises to his name. And the focus is going to be on Mount Zion in Jerusalem. So John, in the book of Revelation, kind of brings this to his from his point of vision and shows us a new Jerusalem, doesn't he? He shows us a new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. And that new Jerusalem coming down and taking its place on the earth. And that's a part of the new creation, isn't it? There's going to be a new creation, a new heavens and a new earth. John in in the book of Revelation talks about a new heavens and a new earth. The old things are gone. No more tears, no more crying. The old things have passed away. And there will be a new heavens, a new earth of joy, of of. Uh, pleasure, of enjoyment, of worship, of praise to God. Do you know that the first book in the Old Testament or in the Bible that talks about a new heavens and a new earth is Isaiah? And so John gets a lot of his language of a new heavens and a new earth from Isaiah. And even the focus of the new Jerusalem we see here in Isaiah of God coming to reign and rule in Jerusalem. Now, from the perspective of an ancient Israelite, they may be thinking of, in small terms, of the Jerusalem that they knew, the small Jerusalem that they knew, and and God coming to reign there. But we know from this side of the cross and from the revelation of John that the Jerusalem that Isaiah was ultimately speaking about is something even grander than they could have imagined. Something where, where God's kingdom comes down to earth, to a new earth, a new heavens, and where it reigns forevermore in peace and in joy. Now, isn't that something to look forward to? Just stop and think about that. Stop and think about that concept of a new heavens and a new earth, a new glorious city, holy city of Zion, where God dwells. And all of his people dwell in safety. All of his people dwell in joy forevermore. Doesn't that put in perspective some of the troubles and difficulties that we face in this life? That's the great Christian hope, isn't it? The great Christian hope is that there is more than just this world has to offer. There's another one that's coming later where those treasures cannot fade away. They can't rust. People can't steal them. Where those, treasure, where those treasures will last forever. And so Jesus says, lay up your treasures there. 
Whereas Paul says in Colossians chapter 3, he says, get your eyes off of the things below and set your eyes on things above where Christ is in the heavenlies. So every once in a while, in fact, pretty much every day, we need a reorientation of our vision, don't we? We need a reorientation of our vision. We need to get our eyes up from down here and all that's going on in this world, and we need to exalt them, lift them up on high, and look out into the distant future and see what God has promised for all of his people. And in that grand vision, let some of the things that we're going through, let them shrink in comparison. And find comfort and find encouragement, find joy in that. Motivation to love and serve one another in the midst of this world, looking forward to the next. But God is going to be just, and God is sovereign over the whole world, isn't he? And when he, is, when he sees fit in his time, he will bring this judgment on the world and bring ultimate salvation to his people.